Take your Bibles now and let's turn to, once again, to the Ten Commandments as they are found in Exodus chapter 20. This is one of the two places in the Old Testament where the Ten Commandments are listed, Deuteronomy 5 being the other. And as we've seen, and we'll see again uh, now, uh, these commandments are found, of course, scattered throughout the New Testament in one way, one form or another. So we're going to read the entirety this time of the Ten Commandments all the way through the Tenth, because the Tenth Commandment is where we will be what we will be considering now. Exodus chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord, and we need to listen carefully because of that. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. We read earlier in our service, Jesus' summation of all the commandments. The great commandment, as it is known, had two parts to it. It had the first, as the first part, Jesus saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, all your strength. And the second part was, is where he said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, on those two commandments, those two parts, depend all the laws of God. You could go through the, New, the Old Testament or the New, and anything that is given to us by way of precept or by example, uh, good or bad, you can categorize it in one of those Ten Commandments, and even further, you could categorize it in the Great Commandment, loving God, loving your neighbor. And as we've gone through the Ten Commandments, we've seen that the first four Tell us how to love God. And those, that's where we have to start in our personal lives. Do I love God? Do I truly, sincerely love God? If Jesus had said to you or me what he said to Peter, do you love me? Would we be able to say, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. 
We are to love God above everything else. Nothing should get in the way of our relationship with God. And the only way we can love our neighbor is if we love God first. Because loving neighbors, our neighbor is really the outflow of a heart that loves God. And we've been looking at all these commandments, and now we come to the last one. And I hope you have seen and will continue to see that these commandments really do speak to us. They speak to our hearts. They are telling us, this is God's will for me. This is how God wants me to live. And if it goes against the grain of what our culture says, so be it. But because I love God, I'm going to live the way he wants me to live. Not the way my peers expect me to live. Not the way the powers that be in our world today uh, even require me to live if it goes against God's will. Rosaria Butterfield uh, is uh, a wonderful Christian woman who wasn't always a wonderful Christian woman. She'll tell you that. Uh, she was a lesbian for many years, and she uh, was a tenured professor at uh, Syracuse University when she was converted to Christ. And lo and behold, she ended up marrying a Presbyterian minister. And now she is, you know, having a great influence with uh, her story and all that she's learned about scripture and how to live in the world that we're living in right now. Recently, she uh, was interviewed in uh, a webcast uh, put out by Ligonier Ministries. And one of the things that struck me when I heard that interview is when she said this, the Bible knows me better than I know me. And so often people today, and maybe we've struggled with this too, we think we know best and we know ourselves. I know who I am, I know what I want, and this is what I want and I'm going for it. Even if it means a radical change in your life, physically or otherwise. And so in our pride, we, we think that way. But this statement is saying, and I think it's absolutely true, she nails it. The Bible knows me better than I do. And when you get to that point to understand that, you begin to read the Bible in a whole new way. You know, you're reading the Bible by letting the Bible tell you who you are and tell you where you're... Uh, pleasing God and where you're not. Tell you that you are divorced from God because of your sin by your own sinful nature and that the remedy for that, of course, is to run to Christ. So we're looking at these commandments in that light and we look at the 10th commandment today and the 10th commandment, when you read it, may almost seem like an afterthought. You know, you read these other nine ones, uh, those are heavy. And you get to the 10th one and it's kind of almost anticlimactic, at least on the surface. It doesn't seem as necessary as the other nine. Some years ago, there was a survey that found out that 53% of evangelicals claim that they have completely followed this commandment. Um, I guess they were proud of themselves, which would mean they've broken another commandment, but I, I, I would hope that at least by the time we leave this, this uh, sanctuary today, if we have it already, I would hope that we realize, hey, this is another one that helps me realize who I, how I'm living and where I'm pleasing God and where I'm not. So what we're going to do is break down this commandment uh, to the point of where we're going to look at it over the next couple of weeks. And what today I want us to do, uh, uh, rather uh, concisely, is simply deal with the question, what is coveting? What is coveting? And next time we will deal with the question, why are we so inclined to coveting? 
And then lastly, uh, the following time, we will answer the question, how can we break free from coveting? So it's a what, a why, and a how uh, that we'll be thinking about. So today, just uh, trying to get a sense of what this uh, commandment is telling us. We are not to covet. What does that mean? Well, there's an intensive element to this idea of, of this practice of coveting, and there's an extensive aspect to it. Now, let's just think about that. <coughs> Excuse me. The basic meaning of coveting has to do with desire, want. What do we desire in our lives? And it even has the element of strong desire. This is the only commandment that deals exclusively with our hearts. It, every commandment deals with our hearts, but this one deals only with our, our inner self. That's why I'm talking about the intensive element. It has to do with what's going on in our hearts, our, our, our interest, or what matters most to us. And it uh, has its outward manifestations, of course. All the other commandments have, you know, it it's tells us don't do these things. And you, if you do them, it's, a, it's a, a product of how you are in your heart. This one is just talking about how you are in your heart. So this commandment will certainly manifest itself with our words and with our actions. But desire is not necessarily sinful in itself. So coveting is really focusing on sinful desire. Sometimes we use the word lust in this sense. It's closely related to the word for desire or covet. We can have a strong desire for good things. In uh, Psalm 19, verse 10, David says, uh, talking about the law of the Lord, you know, he says the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul and so on. And he says, they are more to be desired than gold, even fine gold. David hungered to know the word of God and he desired it. So see, that's a desire that's obviously righteous and pleasing to God. We also read uh, in Paul telling the Corinthians about spiritual gifts. And he says, but earnestly desire the greater gifts. And then he launches, that's in 1 Corinthians 12, 31. And as soon as he says that, he launches into chapter 13, love. Faith, hope, love, the greatest of these is love. Earnestly desire the greater gifts. Don't get so hung up on some of these other gifts that you have. They may be legitimate, may be fine, but, but if you practice those other gifts without love, you're just like a noisy gong or a cymbal. So that's what we want to stress here is that we want that righteous kind, but we often aren't that way with our desires. Luke 22, which um, is the area that deals with the Lord's Supper, in Luke's version, right at the beginning, when the disciples sit down for the meal, he says, I have earnestly desired to have this meal with you. And it says, you know, that, that he, he, wants to, he wants to communicate to them, not just going through the motions of having that Passover meal, but what it implies, what it is teaching and telling them. We do this sometimes with uh, legitimate desires. We even use the word covet in a good way. How many times have you said or somebody you know say, we covet your prayers? That's a good thing, right? We covet your prayers. We earnestly desire that you remember us in prayer. Or, this is getting a little more in the worldly side, I guess. If you say, I really want to get a new washing machine. Well, we probably all know that there are times when that's a no-brainer, right? You know, when your washing machine dies 
everything else almost comes to a halt. You know, we really would like to have clean clothes. And so you say, I really want a washing machine. Well, that's for a good reason. You're not uh, guilty of sinning in that sense. But when desires become sinful, that's what it's talking about here. And that desire becomes sinful when we want something that somebody else has, not even necessarily a material thing. It could be a position. I'll list a few of those a little later. Specifically, it is when we long for something that is not properly ours. An inordinate desire. Now, God created us to have desires. Adam and Eve had desires, but what happened? They coveted the forbidden fruit. And they ate. They broke the commandment to not eat of that fruit. Any other fruit tree in the Garden of Eden would have been fine. Boy, that, that banana looks great over there. Let's go get some of those. I want some of those. Okay, fine. That's before they sinned. But now, now that man has disobeyed God and fallen into sin, our desires are all twisted and convoluted. It's because of man's fall. And so things like resentment and anger and envy and discontent will mark us if we are coveting. Those are sort of spin-off effects of coveting. And it all begins with the state of our hearts, as we've seen over and over again. I'll probably say it a hundred times if I had the opportunity. Um, the problem of the heart is the heart of the problem. Or you can reverse that. The, the, heart of the, pro the, problem, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. That's the great thing about Christianity. It, it gets down to the root problems that you and I have and where they start. We tend to just look at the surface manifestations. But when you're really dealing with sin, you've got to come all the way down to where it all starts. And that's what the Word of God is, so wonderfully does. It's painful, but it's very fruitful. Are we living by the flesh, that is our sinful nature, or are we living by the Spirit of God? Are we, are we even unconsciously sometimes, are we going through our days making decisions based on what you want? What would make you happy? Again, those things aren't necessarily bad. But it all depends on whether we're wanting something that's not rightly ours. We want something and we want to get it in an illegitimate way. One way to find out is to ask yourself, what thoughts are running through your mind during idle time? If you're in between a project and you're just, you know, you're, you're kind of uh, on hold for a little while, whether it's at work or at home, whatever, what are the thoughts running through your mind? Wow, look at that. I sure would like that. And it, gets, it can get to a point where that's the predominant thing that you're thinking about. And then we're in trouble. Coveting is intensive. It concerns our deepest thoughts and longings. It's the attitude even that God has, has shorted us in what he has provided. He's not giving us enough. And <clears throat> the reason he's not giving us enough to us is because we want more than he has provided. Or we think he's not going to provide. And so we start scrambling and wanting, thinking God is not aware of what we need. Is God ever unaware of what you need? And we will see next time that all of this is a failure to be content with what we have. 
If you're not truly content with what God is providing you now, that will open up the, uh, the temptation for you to start casting your eye or your thoughts on other things and saying, I need to have that, I want that. Again, if you're not wanting something that's not yours, if it's a legitimate need, the thing to do is to take it to the Lord in prayer. Ask, and you will receive. Whatever we do have, no matter how much it is, if we're, in, if we're into this thing of coveting, no matter how much we have, somehow it's not enough. You know, you say, I just got to have that new car, and you get it, and it's not long before you're thinking, oh, but, but that car is better. I got to have that. Got to be careful about that. You know, God, God doesn't want us to live that way. He doesn't want us to live constantly being stressed and, and uh, focused on things so much that we actually want to have what somebody else has. Like we're trying to keep up with the Joneses. The Israelites were emancipated, use that word again, emancipated from Egypt. We read about that in the psalm. And how God cared for them. He provided for them. He had delivered them from bondage. Christ has delivered us from the bondage of sin. And if he's done that, don't you think he's going to not only know what you truly need, but he's going to provide what you truly need. And here's the thing that really, it struck a lot of Christians who've read this. It's a fairly familiar uh, idea that came from C.S. Lewis in uh, his book, The Weight of Glory. He said, it's not that we desire too much, it's that we desire too little. God has all the greatest of blessings lined up for us. And they won't necessarily be, they won't be in, in many occasions, what we think we need because they're better. Because God's love for you is such that he's not going to hesitate to give you every good thing, things that are good for you. You know, we're like little kids. I want to eat chocolate all the time. Just let me have candy and chewing gum and potato chips and I'll be fine. I'm good. Well, the parrot has something better healthier foods. God has provided and will provide what we truly need for our good. And so C.S. Lewis, <clears throat> in saying that we desire too little, he says we're actually far too easily pleased. <coughs> Sorry. We're far too easily pleased. We, we settle. We settle for what we think is best, and it's actually less than what God has for us. Coveting comes into play. The shorter catechism, you know, every one of these commandments, go to the larger catechism, go to the shorter catechism, and you see it spelled out specifically. Uh, what we do wrong and the opposite of what we ought to do that's right. Shorter catechism says that coveting forbids all discontentment with our own estate. Discontentment. Envying or grieving at the good of our neighbor and all inordinate motions and affections in anything that is his. That's a great summary. Well, let's look at the ex extensive aspect of it, the extensive aspect of coveting. It's simply coveting is desiring or anything or anyone that is not rightly ours. And the rest of verse 17 details how extensive coveting can be. I mean, he doesn't just say don't covet. He spells it out. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, his male servant, female servant, ox, donkey, anything that is your neighbor's. One writer suggests the, you could summarize all that that verse 17 says by saying we should not covet Stuff, relationships, 
or circumstances. We should not covet inordinately improper stuff, relationships, or circumstances. I think that's a good way to express what is being said in verse 17. Often we think uh, that when somebody else has something that we deserve it. Why can't I have something like that? Again, we're like kids. You know, you get a Christmas present and it's great. And then your big brother gets a bigger, shinier Christmas present. Well, that's not fair. Why can't I have one of those? They're immediately dissatisfied with what they got because of what big brother got. And we don't change much when we grow up. So here's a few examples. You want your sister's big, beautiful house that looks like it's been on HGTV. You want your best friend's wife. You want to be the star athlete that excels your fellow athletes in school. You want to, you know, be better than they are. You want your neighbor's new Lexus you see going by in, by your house twice a day when he goes to work and when he comes home from work. Boy, that's a great car. Look over there at my car, just a pile of junk when it's not. You want the job promotion that your manager just got. You want to be as pretty as the young lady that's sitting in front of you at church. Those are just a few examples, but hopefully you get the idea. Coveting interfaces with all the other nine commandments. Paul says in Ephesians 5, 5, that coveting is idolatry. So he's linking the last commandment with the first commandment. And he says the same thing uh, in Colossians 3, verse 5. Coveting is idolatry. We can want something so bad that our desire for it can result in are committing these other sins. They tend to get all mixed in. What we want can become so important to us that we can neglect our real responsibilities. Our spouse, our children, our finances. Coveting someone's wife can result in adultery of both heart and body. <coughs> The last thing I want you to look at, and it might be helpful if you turn to this, Mark chapter 10. <clears throat> this is a very insightful thing that Jesus does with the rich young ruler. Mark 10, 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, do not, uh, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And here's this amazing statement. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Remember what C.S. Lewis said? We settle for far too less. You're going to have treasure in heaven. Follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. 
Now, the thing that's striking here is Jesus basically named the whole second part of the law, the second table, loving your neighbor as yourself, but he didn't name one of them. Coveting. He didn't name it because of what he said next. Go sell all your possessions. That's what the man coveted. And I'm positive, much as I can be positive, that all that he had was not enough for him. That's the problem of wealth. Wealth can be wonderful, rightly understood, rightly used. But wealth can also be a, a dangerous trap. Because if you, don't have, if you don't have your spiritual head screwed on straight, you'll never be satisfied with it, however much you do have. You'll always want more. And the reason you will is because you are not satisfied in God. John Piper, you know, his theme is God is most satisfied. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied with him. If you're satisfied with God, you're going to be content. So let that be an instruction word for us. Now remember, we're not through looking at this 10th commandment. There's more that needs to be said, uh, and we will do that, Lord willing, the next two times we look into these 10 commandments. But thankfully, and we're going to remember that right now. Thankfully, Jesus kept this commandment, the 10th commandment, like he kept all the other commandments. He kept them perfectly all his life long. And he did that so that his substitutionary death in our place, dying because of our sins, means that we can put our trust in him because he will pay for our sins. He has paid for our sins on the cross. And we find forgiveness. We find new life. We find the power of the risen Christ enabling us, slowly but surely maybe, but enabling us to not covet. The 10th commandment, like all the others, is designed to show us our sin so that the God who loves us can show us the better way. Let's think on that as we come to the Lord's table. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that we have a wonderful Savior, a man of sorrows, ruined sinners to reclaim. Oh, Lord, may it be that every one of us here today has been reclaimed by Christ in dying and paying the penalty for our sin and giving us now the ability to keep these commandments. And we pray that you would help us, that we would not be, we would not be bound by coveting. We would not be imprisoned to that awful sin and all the things that it can make us do. We pray, Lord, that we would instead find contentment in our faithful Father. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.
these accounts of the Last Supper, the Passover meal, the final Passover meal, uh, remind us, as always, of the past and present and future aspects of our redemption. Christ has died for us. His body has been broken for us. His blood has been shed for us. That is a once and for all redeeming act, the supreme redeeming act. Jesus said it's a great thing if a man will lay down his life for his friends, but there's no man like Jesus who laid down his life for us, his friends. Jesus told his disciples, you are my friends if you do what I command you. If you know Christ today, you are invited to this covenant meal where in these representative elements, Christ is portrayed. Christ is truly here among us right now. We can't see Him. We can't feel Him. But we take Him at His Word. Through His Holy Spirit, He is present. And He's present in an even greater way when we take part in this sacrament. We talk about how important it is to see God's Word, and particularly the Gospel, clearly, rep or clearly expressed throughout a worship service. And so we talk about how to be faithful, we want to sing the Bible or the Gospel with our singing. We want to pray the Bible, pray biblically, we want to see and feel and taste the gospel that's given to us in the Bible, which we'll do now. We want to hear. And we want to see the great words of the gospel. And that's what we're here to do. And so I encourage you to examine your hearts right now. Paul said, let every man examine himself. Are you trusting in Jesus right now? Praise be to God if you are saying yes. Yes, I'm trusting in Jesus right now. Some of you for a long time. Some of you maybe fairly recently. Doesn't matter really. Are you trusting in Him right now? And then examine how you're living. How well am I doing in pleasing God with my life? Where am I falling short? Where are there patterns of sin? that I'm still struggling with and I need more grace and more help. The Lord offers that. He offers us to come as we are. We don't have to play tricks with Him. We, we don't have to try to fool Him. We couldn't anyway because He knows us better than we know ourselves. So if you're struggling, but you are trusting in Christ, like that picture of the cat maybe, you know, with his claws hanging on the edge of the counter, you know, hang on. I'm hanging on, but, you know, I need more grace. God gives more grace when we ask for more grace. Come and celebrate. Come and celebrate what Jesus has done for you, what he is doing for you, and then the future, what we just read, what he's going to do for you. Drinking it anew in the kingdom in its fullness in glory. If you're not a Christian, or you have serious doubts and just don't know, then take this time not to take part in these elements. You're not, you're not there yet. None of us are until we come to Christ and make a profession of faith and unite with the church. But if you're still wondering, if you're seeking, take the time that you'll have in these few moments and ask God, Lord, find me. I need you, I, I'm seeking you, find me, and he will. Our Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed then, he took bread, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Oh, take your cups uh, as you receive them. You'll uh, receive the double cups uh, with the uh, bread in them and also the, the uh, juice. 
So uh, hold on to those and we'll eat and drink together. Jesus took the bread and gave it to his disciples and instructed them to take, eat. This is my body which is for you and do this in remembrance of me. After supper, Jesus took the cup and distributed it to his disciples, again explaining to them, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink, all of you, of it. Let's pray together.
Father, we have broken bread together. And we have remembered that our life, our hope, is bound up in the cross of Christ. Forbid it, Lord, that we should boast in anything except the cross of Christ. Enable us to live in joyful, confident hope because there is a Savior for sinners and He has come to save us from our sin. Grant us grace. Pardon the defects of this service. Enable us now to go forth from here being living examples of what the gospel can do to change someone's life forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. to you. The Lord turn His face towards you and give you peace through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom be glory forever. Amen.